Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, cats and dogs, and llamas everywhere singing the Rolling Stones, I'll Never Be Your Beast of Burden. Live from the Ohio Foreign Language Teachers Association in Columbus, Ohio, it's Tea with BBP. I'm your host, Bill Van Patten, AKA BBP, international superstar, and what, Walter? Diva of SLA. Don't even get a chance to answer. I know, I know, I had to cut him off at the knees. And speaking of Rolling Stones, with me are two people who never gather any moss. <laughs> Angelica Kramer and Walter Hopkins. Say hi, kids. Hello. That's it. That's it. Hello. Well, and there's nothing. What is this? Hello, Hello everybody. There we go. All right. God, we're supposed to be live, and it doesn't even sound like we're live. It sounds like we're back in the studio. I mean, you have to applaud and say things and hoop and holler and. Let's so try on. it again. Let's try it again. Ready? Hello, everybody. There you go. Well done. God, and I thought I was the one on medication, let me tell you. All right. Well, I have to tell you guys, except for my jaunt to the hospital yesterday, I have to say this has been a great, great conference. I think the folks here at OFLA really, really, really know what to do. They know how to treat us well. I tell you, this has just been a great, great conference. So let's give a big round of applause for the organizers. And all of you all attending, it's been great. And I need to single out two individuals. Um, please let me do this real quick. Lucas Hoffman, where's Lucas? Lucas Hoffman, the president of OFLA. Where is he? Where's Lucas? He's right outside the door. As the president, of course, he is the big cheese in charge of the conference, so he's doing a great job. I don't know if you've ever run a conference yourself, but it's kind of nerve-wracking, so he's done a great job. And a personal thanks, you've, some of you have heard the story already, a personal thanks to Cheryl Johnson, who ran me to the hospital yesterday and patiently waited um, in the ER room for three hours while they were working me over and treating me for the, what ailed me yesterday. Um, and so I appreciate Cheryl. She was just so sweet yesterday. So if you see Cheryl, thank her for me. Um, okay, our show is live. We're gonna do our standard show. Um, we're expecting lots of questions from the audience, but before we get to those, um, we have questions, of course, on Mixler and, and um, Twitter that, um, that Angelica and Walt will be looking at. Uh, remember, we have the SLA challenge question. I'm gonna give you that question in a few minutes. And the first person who makes it up to this microphone at the end to answer the SLA challenge question uh, will win a prize. And we have an array of prizes up here for you all. And the same for the Diva challenge question. I'll read that question at some point and you'll have time to run up to that same microphone at the end of the table there next to Walter. Uh, and I have a really special Diva Challenge question today, because guess what? It's actually tied into the Rolling Stones. Aww. See how I did that? See, Very Walter, nice. See, like, well done. Rolling yeah, yeah, yeah. Walter, can you name, name one Rolling Stones song, Walter? Oh, stop. Come on, name one Rolling Stones song. Uh, I don't like to be put on the spot. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Walter needs to read People magazine or something. He's the worst on pop culture. All right. Pop culture? That's like... 30, 40 years ago. They're still touring. What do you Come mean 30, 40 years ago? Jeez. All right. Walter, you were born 72. Come on, just admit it. Okay. All right. Um, we can't accept calls today because we're, not, we're on the road and we're not set up for accepting calls. So Angelica will be looking at Mixler. Right, Angelica? Yes, sir. And fielding questions and issues that come up there. Walter will be looking at email as well as Twitter um, to see what questions come up there. So um, we'll see what happens. Um, but we are really interested in the audience participation here at OFLA, so we want you to get up, come to the microphone, and ask us questions. Do not be shy. This is your chance to interact with us. We really want you to do that. And we want you to have a good time with us. We do not bite much. So, all right. Oh, and I forgot, we also have three door prizes. 
So if you put your um, little tag in the fishbowl, you can win one of three prizes. The big door prize from Ofla um, is this beautiful iPad. Okay, Ooh. so. And then, of course, we have these other two door prizes. For me, yours truly, uh, either my book, Whisper of Clouds, or my book, um, Dust Storm, so that you can see that I am the talented and wonderful Bill Van Patten. Just kidding. <laughs> I do more than just write scholarly articles and talk to teachers. I actually write fiction, too. I don't know if you know this. I used to be a stand-up comic back in the day. Um, I don't do that anymore because it's a tough life, let me tell you. It's, comedy is really hard. He wasn't well, terribly funny, so... <laughs> oh, oh, sorry. God, see what my life is like, I tell you. I just, some days, it just doesn't pay to get out of bed. All right. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and start off by throwing out the SLA challenge question. And when you think you have the answer, you come rushing up to that microphone because it's first come, first serve, right? And if you, get it, if you answer correctly, you win a prize. Okay, so here's the SLA challenge question. I always say it twice, um, and then when you come up to the microphone, I repeat it. So, All right, yesterday, in my keynote address to the conference, I gave three characteristics of language that render it language impossible to teach and learn explicitly. Name at least two of those characteristics. Okay, so again, I'll repeat. Yesterday in my keynote address, I gave three characteristics of language that render it impossible to teach and learn explicitly. Name at least two of those characteristics and you're oh, gonna oh, oh, oh my God, oh! <laughs> Raced for the mic. Okay, maybe, maybe, I'll tell you you can, maybe you can give the answers to Dustin first before. Actually, we do this. Um, do you have two or all three? Ooh, oh. <laughs> I'll tell you what. We'll let one person go, and if you give, uh, one person will give two, and if the other person can give the third one, then uh, we'll give you both prizes, okay? Oh, that's mean, though. No, we'll give him a prize anyway, so. God, he almost, he almost tackled her. It was like watching a Notre Dame football game up here on the front row. Okay, what's your name? Julia really Thomas. Really okay, Julia, you want to get up to the microphone, Julia? Yes. Yes, uh, Julia Thomas. So where are you from, Julia? Oberlin, Ohio. Oberlin, Ohio. Well, great. Okay, so here's the uh, question again. So as soon as I finish the question, you can give us your answer. Yesterday in my keynote address, I gave three characteristics of language that render it impossible to teach and learn explicitly. Name at least two of those characteristics. Okay. Um, it's complex and it's abstract. Complex and abstract. Ding, 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 ding. Yay! Yay! You like a signed mug? And a bag, you can have whatever you want. Here, take two. <laughs> take one of everything. Take a bag, too. And a pen. Okay. Some notepads, if you want. <laughs> okay. Tell us your name. Hey, I'm Nick Frank. Hey, Nick Frank. God, I hate people with two first names. Like, <laughs> like I'm Billy Joe, you know? Okay, Nick Frank. Um, so, what's the third characteristic? Do you have it? Is it contextual? Contextual? No, but we're going to give you a prize anyway. <laughs> because after almost tackling, after almost tackling somebody in the front row, you deserve something. So there's still time. Does anybody have the third characteristic of language? You want to come up here and try? All right. All right. So there you go. We get lots of prizes to give away. Like I said, this is like the Price is Right today. So except you don't have to spin a wheel. All right, tell us your name. My name is Rose. Hey, Rose. Rose Kramer. Rose Kramer. That is an excellent last name. <laughs> oh, my gosh. 
How did I know she was going to say that, right? Okay, Rose Kramer with an excellent last name. What is the other, the third characteristic? Language is implicit. Implicit, yeah. yay! Ding, 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 there you go. Yay, Rose. Right. There you go, Rose. Thank you. So let's get Rose, Rose, Rose. You need a prize. At Don't least, run away yeah. without your prize. Grab whatever you'd like. Yeah. Take a button too. All right. Yeah. So yesterday I was talking at the keynote that language is uh, abstract, complex, and implicit. Um, and if you want to follow up on any of those issues with some questions today, feel free to come up and ask. All right, I'm going to hold off on the diva question because if I give it now, I can just see people running up, <laughs> tackling each other. I can look at this crowd, this hungry crowd. They're just hungry for prizes. So, but we will take any questions um, from anything at all that you want to talk about. So we're going to, and don't be shy, if I have to call on you like a teacher, I will do it. <laughs> I will do it. And if you're in the front row, then you're going to be Absolutely. particularly Absolutely. On. All right. So, um, again, so yesterday at, at in the keynote, I'll just banter a little bit while you decide to come up here and ask a question. We talked about the nature of language yesterday. We talked about the nature of communication. And we also talked about uh, the nature of acquisition and internal constraints and acquisition. So if any of those things you want to follow up on, then um, we are happy to take your questions. Oh, and we have somebody. Look at that. She's going to get a prize just for going first. <laughs> okay, tell us your name. I'm Melissa. Hey, Melissa, where are you from? Mount Vernon, Ohio. Mount Vernon, Ohio, great. Okay, Melissa, what's your question? I hope it's an easy one. I'm tired. Okay, well, I'm, <laughs> I'm sick, you know. I was in the hospital yesterday. I'm not feeling well, so. No, I'm sorry. I hope it's a yes no question. Uh, <laughs> I, I, sort of, yes. Okay. Okay. Um, no. <laughs> no, just kidding. Go ahead, Melissa. I'm a Spanish teacher. Yay! <laughs> Referring to stages of development, which you touched on yesterday, yes. um, the processability hierarchy talks about the six different stages of development, and a lot of research has been done on learners of English in this sense. Um, yesterday, you touched for just a second on a Spanish acquisition order, and my question is, because I've had difficulty finding it, is there research available on Spanish morpheme acquisition? Um, there was some research done in the early uh, 80s, I believe. Uh, I think when was it published? In 83? Something like that. Um, Margaret Van Nerson did some research on that um, way back in the day. Um, what happened was because um, there was so much research done on English with a variety of first language learners that showed that these, these morpheme order acquisition things. Does everybody know what we mean by morpheme acquisition orders? Do, I need to, do you want me to just tell you in two seconds what that is? Yeah. Okay, uh, it's what I talked about yesterday where something like the verb endings appear in ordered development over time. So like English ing appears before past tense, appears before and is acquired before um, third person s. So that's an example of morpheme order acquisition. Morphemes are the tiniest, tiniest pieces of language that carry any meaning, right? Uh, okay, so um, because there was, there was such a robust uh, set of literature and research on English, regardless of your L1, that people went, okay, they took it as a given, they really didn't look too much more at other languages. Although there has been some work in Spanish, a little bit, I guess, in the 80s, um, and there's been a lot of work in um, stage development, not morpheme orders, but stage development in German, Japanese, Swedish now, um, Spanish, um, and some other, other languages. So, so there is some out there, but, but not a lot. So. Um, so if you want to, if, you, if you're interested in, in what those things are, I can tell you later on a few okay. sources, but okay. yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Melissa, take a prize for asking a question. There you go. Someone had to go first. 
There you go. Let's see. Should I give that the, the diva challenge question out to see how many people run up and like tackle each other? Go ahead. Go ahead. Help yourself, Melissa. Okay. So I'm going to go ahead and give you the diva challenge question now. And as I said earlier, it is tied into the Rolling Stones. You're going to love this. Okay. You ready for this? Here's my diva challenge question for the group. What diva made a video with Mick Jagger in the early 1980s in which she covered Beast of Burden? See, I got two things in there. Um, and in the video, in the video claims to even do it better than Mick Jagger. So again, what diva made a video with Mick Jagger in the early 1980s in which she covered Beast of Burden and claimed to have done it better, and in my estimation she did, better than Mick Jagger. Okay. Bette oh, Midler. There we wow. go. Didn't even wait for no me. No name, no nothing. No name, no nothing. <laughs> I love it. You got to tell us your name first. I'm Debbie. Hey, Debbie, where are you from? I'm from uh, Uniontown, Ohio, near Akron. Oh, Cleveland. great. Okay. And how did you know that? I mean, you didn't. I watched a lot of MTV growing up. Oh, there you <laughs> yes. go. That so. was one of the best music videos from the 80s ever. It was funnier than heck. Um, you have to uh, go YouTube it and look for <laughs> Bette Midler and Mick Jagger because they actually sang together. Um, it was pretty funny. It was pretty, pretty funny. I th first, right. I thought you were going to ask about Tina Turner. Didn't they do a video together? Who? Uh, Mick Jagger and Tina Turner. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah I yeah. remember that. Yeah, but um, I think it was It Takes Two Babies. She redid that one with him, so yeah. All right. Okay, well, great. take a prize and then sit down. <laughs> okay, applause for Debbie. Thanks, Debbie. Yay, Debbie. Okay, while we're waiting for our wonderful audience here to... Um, to rush to the microphone. I'm not, I'm not even looking at anybody in particular to come to the microphone, although I should. Um, there's probably nothing coming up on Mixler yet, right? Not yet. Not yet, of course not. Everybody's asleep at home, I tell you, on Saturday. Mm -hmm. Walter, did we get any um, tea with BBP at, G, um, at Gmail questions this week? Not very many, but I do have one. Well, it's a pretty simple one. All right, I like simple. Just wants clarification. Simple is my middle name. This is from Joel. Joel. From Alabama. The first Joel. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Joel from Alabama is planning planning to uh, make a presentation to her school board, and she wants to quote you, and she wanted to make sure she was quoting you correctly. All uh oh. Right? Uh oh. Uh -oh. So she wanted to be sure that you. Can say, I, I want immunity for this? I really do. I want. <laughs> give me that. Says, give me that Michael Flynn lawyer guy. That. <laughs> She says, make communication your goal and acquisition will follow. Would that be all right? Did I get it right? That's what she wants to know. Uh, I've never said that that way that I recall, but that is not incorrect. Um, <laughs> if, if, you're, if, you, if your class is centered on communication um, in the sense of meaning making, and what we talked about yesterday, the expression and interpretation of meaning in the classroom, right? And if your learners are actively engaged from the get-go and trying to interpret meaning from you and the text that they have, then acquisition will follow. So acquisition is always bound. I think the term I've used in the past is acquisition is always bound up in communication. It's not divorced from communication. It's bound up in it because there has to be some kind of meaning-making going on um, for acquisition to happen. Not on the part of the learner, but on the part of the input that the learner is getting. So, Yes. So right. was that Joel? That's Joel. All right. Well, that was a good question. I like that. So Joel, I hope you're listening, or if not, that you will listen, and you've got the answer to your question there. So there you have it. Now, how many people in the audience here are? Is this your first time doing tea with BVP? Any first timers? Whoa! Yay! Nice. Whoa! Well, just so that you know, we've got the screen up here. We have archived shows, so you can go into our website, teawithbvp.com, and you can find 
past shows in there on a variety of topics. And uh, Daniel labels them every week, so you should be able to scroll and say, oh, I want to listen to that one, or I want to listen to that one. Um, or listen to all of them. Listen to all of them, and <laughs> listen to Walter's sweet voice. <laughs> and um, uh, they're great for the treadmill. They're great for running. It's true, I have people who tell me they listen to it on the treadmill, or while they're running or doing things. I can, I just, every time I'm at the gym, I look at the guys next to me or something, I go, God, I wonder if they're listening to tea with BVP, you know, <laughs> their little headphones on. I just. Wouldn't that be awesome to be at the gym and someone going, are you that Tea with BVP guy? Anyway, so. I have, I have questions from uh, Twitter. Oh, good. So who's, who's tweeting us? Tweet, tweet. I mean, tweeting us. Chris, he has three questions. I uh -oh. assume Chris is he. I actually don't know. Question number one, how do you all focus with so many sexy people in the room? <laughs> is Chris here? How does he know the three of us are sexy? No, no, I don't, I don't, I think he's referring to the audience. Oh, I thought he was referring just, to three of us. Oh. I mean, we are, we are ridiculously sexy. I but mean, the audience is pretty sexy, too. No, we just posted a picture of the audience on Twitter. So he's asking, how, how, do, how, how do we focus? How do you focus? I just imagine them all naked. <laughs> that's inappropriate. <laughs> Question number two. No, that's, that, don't you know that that's the thing when you do public speaking? Yes. To get over your nervousness, you're supposed to picture everybody naked? Yes. <laughs> Never mind. Wow. Okay. <laughs> okay, question That's number two. That's how I work two with you guys is... in the studio. I imagine you guys naked oh, and it gets me through the hour. Seriously? <laughs> wow, disturbing thoughts. Yeah. I think we should leave. Question number two. What other than tea does BVP drink as he drinks what tea? Thank Earl you. Earl Grey, it is. Well done. Wait, That's who said the, that? I need a prize. That's worth a prize. That's worth yeah. a prize. Come on, get a prize. I'm actually drinking Earl Grey tea right now. So there you go. What's your name? Oh, get, get, tell us your name in the microphone real quick. <laughs> I always like to meet people, so. I'm Teresa. Hey, well, Teresa, where are you from? Nashport, Ohio. Nashport, so you must be a fan that you know I drink Earl Grey tea. <laughs> I just remember that pa past episode. Oh, there you go. There you go. Well, you get a prize for remembering <laughs> a past episode. There you go. Yay, Teresa. So that's actually a question for y'all because that was, I gave examples of this in my keynote yesterday when we were talking about the nature of language. So you should be able to answer this question. So what other than tea does Bill Van Patten drink? Kind of sound like Donald Trump talking about myself in the third person. Um, you remember? See, you should have come up and done that at the mic. You could have won a prize. Yes, vodka. Okay, and before we take this live question, the third question is Mark Angelika Katzen und die Antwort ist nein, absolut gar nicht. Yes, right. That's what I said. Right. <laughs> okay. Can you tell us what that means? Does Angelica like cats? And the answer is absolutely not. Okay. Well, there you okay. go. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Katzen. Okay. We got somebody at the mic. Tell us your name, please. Kate. Hey, Kate. Where are you from? I'm from Sylvania, Ohio. Sylvania. Okay. That's where, isn't that where Lucas is from? Lucas, do you teach at the same school or work together? Yes, he's my hero. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I like heroes, those are good sandwiches. <laughs> Lots of little extra mayo, you know, I'm just kidding. Go ahead. <laughs> so Kate, what's up? I have what seems to be a loaded question to me. Uh, yesterday you talked about um, the difficulty of the context of the classroom being the only experience the students have. Yeah, the limit, limited context. Yeah, so do you have some examples or any ideas of what's the best way to remove them or have them experience something more real? Well, let me just 
back up and tell you that there's nothing unreal about a classroom <laughs> if you're engaged in communication. A, a, a classroom is an authentic communicative environment because you have real people who can talk to each other and interact. And so I always get a little weirded out when I hear people say, you know, uh, bring in authentic materials and the classroom's not real. The classroom is real. Like, would you say this is artificial, what we're doing right here right now? No, this is a real environment and we're interacting, communicating within the context of this space in the conference. So every context of communication is a real context if you're actually engaged in communication. Um, so I think what you, what you mean is there are ways to bring the outside world into the classroom and so on. Um, I mean, yes and no, it depends. Um, it, uh, it's, it's difficult um, to do that where you can actually set up a way in which the learners can engage with someone or something. We use, um, one of the things that we use at um, Michigan State is Talk Abroad uh, with our learners in the fourth semester um, where they have to do interactions um, uh, via Skype. Um, well, it's a Skype-based program. Um, with people around the Spanish-speaking world, and they have four of those after doing it in a semester, and then they report back and tell the class what they learned and so on, and their particular tasks they do with them. Um, that's one way. There are other things you can do. I mean, everybody knows that you can use the internet for things, and you can bring music in. I mean, music is real stuff, quote unquote. Um, so I think it's just um, you're, you're only limited by your imagination. But the, the point is, what you cannot do in the classroom is, is turn the classroom into a context it's not. So I made the reference yesterday to role play, for example. A lot of people think, oh, role play is communication, and I always tell them, no, it's not. Because you are not yourself, and you are not interacting with someone who's being him or herself. And so a role play is completely artificial. That's very unreal, actually. Um, and so, because the classroom is not a doctor's office, it's not a restaurant, it's not a bus station, it's not a train station, it's not a grocery, it's not any of those things, right? It's a classroom with students and a teacher. And so, those kinds of things uh, is what I was pointing to, that, that the classroom is a limited context for communication because it cannot provide all those various things. Now, which, what I've noticed over the years in teaching is that um, once you move students past the early levels, getting film into the classroom and getting things in the classroom they watch and engage where they actually see things happen um, that are real scenes based on, on, I mean, it's fiction, of course, film is fiction, but the scenes are always um, culturally appropriate. And so they give you, in a sort of a backdoor way, what happens in a doctor's office. I mean, like, watch a soap opera in Spanish and watch a scene in the hospital with a doc, you know, you can watch that. Um, or there's a lot of stuff that you can find, um, either through TV or film, that allows students to watch and experience and then talk to you about afterwards uh, in terms of what happened in that. Um, so anyway, so, the, so those are some things you could do. I, I taught a conversation course last year where I, it was all film-based and I use Pan's Labyrinth. And so the thing about film is you've got to break it up and use small segments so that it's manageable in the classroom. And so that's what we did. And so we watched everything in small segments over the course of the semester. And the students were amazed because not only did they learn a lot about history because it's contextualized. If you know the film, it's based, it takes place right after the Spanish Civil War or several years after the Spanish Civil War. But there's a lot of scenes in there with different kinds of characters that gave them context to look at even though they weren't interacting with. It gave them context that weren't part of the classroom. And because they were actively engaged and watching and very interested and motivated to find out what happened, they were, in, they were like voyeurs of another context. So I'm a, I'm a big believer in using film and TV and things like that. Those are good things to use if you've got good stuff, right? So good question, thank you, Gay. All right, 
Um, anything else coming up on Mixler or Tea with BBP at Gmail, Walter? Or, or tweets or twits or whatever the word is? I don't know. I'm technology challenged. I don't, I don't twit Nada. or tweet. We've got nothing here. I don't know. I think we have a live question, though. Oh, we have a live question. There we go. How about if we step up to the microphone? What's your name? Okay. Hi, my name is Maria. And hey, I, we have Maria. And I teach at Kent State University. Kent State. Wow, good for you. So thank you. how are you enjoying the conference? Oh, I love it. It's one of my favorite conferences. Well, I make good a for point you. of attending offline every year. There you go. Yeah. See, Lucas, you're doing a good job. People are happy with you. Yeah. And everybody else sitting back there, too. And the whole board is back there. So we want to thank everybody, not just Lucas. but. The, the kind of the, does fall on Lucas's shoulders because if the conference thinks they're swimming a given year, you can always blame the president. You know, that was Lucas's fault, or Lucas did a good job. One of the two. So, okay, Maria, what's your question? Okay, I was, you know, um, I'm a kind of a jack of all trades, and I started in the sciences. And I was talking to Bill this morning, uh, as I was listening to your presentation yesterday. I was trying to relate to my background in the natural sciences, where things don't always work the way you think they work. And uh, when you teach introductory level course in, you know, in biology, you teach them the rules. You teach them mental laws, and that's what you probably all learned. And then when you have the more experienced learners, then you start teaching them, well, you know, these are the extensions to the laws. And then these are the exceptions to the rules. So I was making that analogy in my own brain, and that's not just for Mendel laws, it's for pretty much any rule in biology which is not as clear cut as physics or chemistry, but uh, so why not do that in the languages as well? Teach them the basic rule and then progress from there. Um, a rule in sciences is not the same thing as a rule in language. So let's say you take Mendelian laws, for example, or you take, uh, uh, some basic law of physics, like no two objects can occupy the same space at the same time. Talking about physics is not the same thing as the physics itself, okay? And same thing with biology. So if I have a law that talks about, for example, um, there are four kinds of mutations, right? And that's how, we get, that's how we get evolution happening, right? Okay, so here's the four kinds of mutations. Talking about the mutations is not the same thing as the mutations themselves. And so uh, what I was saying yesterday was the rules that we give learners aren't even real rules to begin with. And so language in our heads is not those rules, and it can never be those rules. And so it's, it's really, we're talking about, I think, apples and oranges here. So that um, you, and the object of biology classes is to have some, some conscious conceptualization of how biology works. But that is not the object of communicative language teaching. The object of communicative language teaching is not to have some conscious conceptualization of how language works. It's the ability to use language, right? And to have language in your head as an abstract representation. And so it really is different. Um, and so I think that, because um, I thought a little, about this a little more after we talked this morning. Maria came in and talked to me at, um, when I was sitting having my little thing of yogurt this morning, because that was all I could stomach. Um, I thought about it a little bit more, and I, I, the more I thought about it, but we really are talking apples and oranges here. So other subject matter, you really are, you are purposely going for conscious knowledge, knowing about biology, knowing about chemistry, knowing about history. 
Um, but language is not knowing about language. It actually is, the goal is ultimately to use language and have language in your head. So it actually does operate differently. And again, the rules that you give in biology um, that have or don't have exceptions are qualitatively different than the rules in language textbooks because the rules in language textbooks aren't even real rules. I mean, they're just not. They're external descriptions of something that are inaccurate to begin with and two, are not reflective of this very abstract, complex nature of language. So, um, so my, my long-winded answer, sorry, Murray, my long-winded answer is I think we're talking about two different things, which is why I said yesterday at the keynote, um, we have to treat language special and we have to say we're a different kind of subject matter than history and chemistry and math and so on. It's a different kind of subject matter um, and so we should have our own pedagogies and argue our points um, um, so that we can better treat language not as an object but as something else. That's my answer to you, Maria. Thank you. Thank All right. you, Maria. Good question. That's a good question. All right. Um, anything else? Nothing coming up? Did, you add, did we get all of Chris's questions, by the way? Chris writes we to us did. all the time. Chris is a good guy. He writes to us all the time. So, um, I have a question from Blair on Mixler. Ooh, Blair. This is not the, there was a Blair here at the conference. Not, she's not here, is she? Is that your question? Then, uh, <laughs> then I'm not going to ask see, it. See, you, you have to come up to the microphone, yep, Blair. <laughs> Why not? We have somebody else coming to the microphone, right? Oh my We've God! Got a lineup here. They're lining so up. My God, this looks Blair, like Blair. Come get in line. Yep. You're gonna miss your chance. This looks like this is like a Starbucks. you get to claim we're practically, a prize we're too. practically a Starbucks here. Look at the line for me. Oh my gosh. <laughs> okay, Blair, you gotta get in line here. All right. So, uh, tell us your name, sir. Hello, I'm Bill. Hey, Bill. I like your name. Thanks. <laughs> Do you know the you know the term tocayo in Spanish? Huh? You know the term tocayo in Spanish? No. Tocayo. Who knows what tocayo is? Okay. So tell them what tocayo is. Tokayo is when you share the same name. Technically, it's supposed to be you're named after somebody, but actually, we've extended that in Spanish to be that you share the same name, so you're my Tokayo. I'm sure that's what my parents were thinking. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well played, sir. Well played. For that Next. alone, you get a prize. Next person, please. <laughs> so, can I ask my question? Of course. <laughs> Sooner or later, you're going to ask it. My gosh, I'm getting older by the minute here. Hurry up, Bill. <laughs> Sounds like a personal problem. But. Um, all right. So yesterday, I kind of quoted you. I don't know. I added a lot of emojis. So on Twitter. Um, so it was something to the effect of explicit practice does not alter the process of uh, the order of acquisition. So if you're practicing Sarah versus a star or whatever, um, it's not going to come any quicker just because you're practicing it. Right? Correct. Um, well, uh, well, I mean, there are people who claim it comes quicker. Right. But um, I'm not sure that it's because of practice. It could be, uh, I'll, I'll come back to that topic later if people want me to, but um, what it doesn't do is alter those stages of the acquisition of Senna That's what it can't do. Okay. Um, well, someone replied, and I was just wondering on your opinion on this or your input on this, um, and they asked if it can help apply what you've already acquired in the three modes of communication, and I took that as um, learning versus acquisition. That's like when the, the practice, the explicit instruction would come to help in output and when you have the time to monitor, correct? Like it's... Right. Okay. Right. Here's what often happens. Let's, let's just 
back up for a minute here about this contextualizing these things that that come out of the proficiency guidelines and ideas about um, best practices and so on is that this idea of the three modes of, of, um, of communication or three modes of presentation, whatever you want to call it. When you look at the guidelines and you look at things like novice, intermediate, advanced, superior and distinguished, what you actually have there is the following, that in the lower stages, what those are tests of, these are not tests of acquisition, these are tests of an ability to do something, right? And so the lowest stages of the actual guidelines you are functioning a lot with conscious knowledge and monitoring, as you say, right? So you're, you're, you're learning a lot of learn system because that's all you have. In the meantime, you're, if you're getting enough input interaction, your acquired system is starting to build up. And what happens, the shift, everybody's heard of the fact that they're the biggest, one of the hardest leaps is from intermediate to advanced. Do you know why that is? I've looked at those things, and I've, I've, I used to be a tester, and I've tested people and so on. My hypothesis is that because that marks when it's like a rocket taking off, and it ejects a stage, and it, it, it and uses another stage of the rocket before it ejects that mode. So what's happening at that leap from intermediate to advanced is that you're starting to eject your learned system and letting your acquired system start to take over more of communication. And so that's when you read those descriptions of those lower levels of, of the guidelines, for example, that that's, they really do reflect um, sort of that, that scenario, I think. Um, okay, now, with that said, um, I don't think I answered your question, though, because <laughs> I had to back up and do that, because your question was about, tell me your question again, Bill, sorry. Well, you went on so long, I forget. <laughs> um, well, Bill, you're, Bill, you're looking at your damn phone. Look at your phone again. Come on. I was just reading a tweet. Oh. Um, it was about um, the explicit instruction. It doesn't alter right. acquisition, right. but does it um, help with, like, it helps with the, well, what was the question? See, I did forget. What you asked was, does it help with your output How, do, how does monitoring? it, um, can it help apply when you've already acquired in the three modes? And I'm, um, not 100% positive what he's asking either, but um, I guess. But see, you, I, I you, think you, got, you got to understand here what's going on. I think the question is reflective exactly of what I was talking about yesterday, is that hidden in that question is the idea that there are rules to apply. These rules are not real rules. And so your acquired system, it's not that you acquire those rules, you're acquiring something completely different in your head. And so those, those rules that learners are taught and practice and so on, um, that they can get away with in those stages have to disappear because they are not language. And so I think hidden that question is, is, is a misconceptualization about what language itself is, right? And so I would actually tweet back that person and say, define language. Define what you mean by if they use the word rules, because that's important, I think. Um, and that's the hardest thing to wrap our heads around. I'm, I, I, this is why I like to talk about this topic so much, is because, again, as I've said how many times, Walter? What's on page 32 is not what winds up in your head. Um, only 32 times. Only 32 times. Um, that people think these rules for set and start are real rules. They're not. These rules for the passé composé and parfait in French are not real rules. None of these things are real that, that we teach. They are ways. It's like when we were in the Stone Age and trying to figure out, I mean, people used to think, the sun revolved around the earth, right? Because that's what you saw. 
So what you see on the outside is this thing that looks like a rule, but what's in your head is something completely different. It, you're, you're seeing the sun go around the earth, but what's happening in your head is something completely different than that. Um, and so I, I can't say that enough. It's really hard, unless you're a linguist and actually grapple with the nature of language, it's hard for you to see that because we are so professionally, so entrenched in this idea that these, these, why do we have textbooks? Why do we have these things in textbooks if they're not real? Um, and that's one of the biggest things we need to work on, so. Okay, all right, Bill, sorry about that, but there you Thank go. You. All Thanks, right. Bill. Thanks, Bill. Take a prize. Oh, yo, you got one, good. Got okay. a prize, excellent. All right, who do we have next? Tell us your name. Hi, I'm Lee. Hey, Lee, where are you from, Lee? Columbus, Ohio. Hey, Columbus, Ooh. yay. Hometown came girl. Really far. There you go. <laughs> Via New York. <laughs> <laughs> um, for the past 15 years here in Ohio, um, our state organization has offered an elementary level one-week sleepaway camp for elementary learners. And for me, uh, participating in that camp has been a, a meaningful experience, and it really echoed a lot of the messages that you were sharing with us yesterday in your keynote. So I'm wondering if you could share with us a meaning, meaningful experience from your practice that maybe either was influential in your thinking or your teaching practice, and also uh, as a follow-up, if you could just share a message with non-language people about the importance of languages, what would that be? Okay, so the first question was an and, and any kind of experience? Yeah. Oh, okay. don't run away, Lee. We need to give you a prize. Yeah, don't run away, Lee, because I may, <laughs> I, I may need to ask you what your second question was again. Um, aside from the fact that I've done tons of research and I've interacted with lots of researchers, um, it's, it's very powerful to have that information in your hands. It really does make you think about the world differently um, than, than if you don't have it. And so those, all those experiences interacting with research have been important to me. But on a more personal level, Okay, my, fir my first languages are Spanish and English. That's what I grew up with. Then I learned French as a second language. French is really hard. It's got the weirdest pronunciation. I mean, if, you know, um, at least for a Spanish speaker and for an English speaker. Um, and it, it, it's just, it's, and forget about the writing system. And so I had to study, I studied French in classrooms and I, you know, did all the stuff that everybody did. This was before I was a language acquisitionist, I didn't know anything about it. So I did everything that they told me to do, you know, copied the rules and did this and copied the verb forms and answered, you know, took my tests and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I got to graduate school and I was working my MA in um, Romance Linguistics. And I had to take my first graduate course in French. I didn't understand crap in that course. Um, not the material, because I'm, I, was a I was already starting to be a linguist. I could spend time reading stuff and understand it. But discussions in class were like way over here because I didn't have the skills. I, didn't, I hadn't acquired any French. And then I went to Quebec one summer to teach at Laval. And I really, really saw, I mean, I knew this, um, but then I saw the power of, of having people talk to you at the level you need to be talking, interacting in certain ways. I mean, it happened at a dinner party because they were all native Quebecois speakers and then me at this dinner party. And I had to tell them, whoa, hold the phone. Can you slow down? Can you do this and that? And sure enough, they did. Um, and then all of a sudden, I felt I could be part of the group and actually get something out of it. So that was a real eye-opener to me in terms of, of communication, 
acquisition tied to communication, seeing it in the flesh. And that was a real eye-opener for me. That happened years and years and years ago. Um, and I've never forgotten that dinner party. So th that was one experience. OK. Um, and then your second question was about? Um, for, for people who are not involved in world language education, either for purposes of advocacy or for just talking about the importance of world languages. Any advice you might care to share with us, because you have experience on a much broader level than many of us do here, um, about, I guess, advocacy and just recognition right. of the importance of world languages. Right. Um, the, I mean, the things I would say are probably things that people already say, right? Um, so, um, of course, we all know that there's a tremendous economic benefit to knowing a second language, right? Everybody who knows a second language and is functional in it, both in terms of literacy and in terms of interactive oral ability or signing ability, um, is, enters the job market with a higher salary they can command compared to people who are monolingual. That's just a fact that's out there. And that's well documented and so on. Um, and businesses will tell you that, that we, you, know, you can get $10,000 more from us per year if you are bilingual, for example, in something. And there are particular languages they want. Um, the second thing is that um, the research on this is a little fuzzy, but I think it's starting to, to show us that actually, yes, there is a cognitive benefit to bilingualism, not so much from the kind of cognitive benefit people talk about in terms of school subject matter and so on, but later in life that there is some emerging research that shows that bilinguals, and you don't have to be bilingual from birth, you can be a late bilingual. Um, bilingualism actually helps later in life with dementia. It's sort of, um, in standard um, uh, comparisons of monolinguals and bilinguals, the onset of dementia in comparable groups is much later for bilinguals than it is for monolinguals. So there's something going on in the mind, exercising your mind, because those of us who are bilingual, again, it can be a late bilingual, it doesn't have to be an early bilingual like someone like me, but that constant having to, because you're constantly suppressing one language or another at any point in time, because you've got two in your head, and that's just a fact, whether you know you're doing it or not, your, your executive function is doing that in your brain. Um, and so that seems to be one of the things that, that is a, uh, a byproduct of knowing two languages. And the third thing, of course, that I would tell people is, look, in this day and age, there's a, a, a homeland benefit. There's a security benefit for knowing languages. Um, this country um, needs people who are functional in languages, not just to go abroad, but to work here in our communities. Um, and to interact with people. Um, there's intelligence gathering, all kinds of things that need to happen. Whether we want to admit it or not, that's the world we live in now. And so a third benefit of bilingualism and, and, and saying, look, it, it, it's, it's patriotic <laughs> to know more than one language, actually. It's unpatriotic to only know English, I think. So, um, so I think that's another argument I would use with people. Um, I actually will, can I do a true confession here? Yeah. I, I'm gonna, yes, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, don't quote me on this. We'll all quote you on this. Keep those fingers off your, your telephone there, Bill. Yeah. Um, but I was, at, <laughs> I was at a major intelligence thing um, back in 2005 or six, I think, I forget when it was. I was still living in Chicago at the time. And I was brought to Washington, D.C. With, with, with a couple of other people. And we sat in a room full of admirals and generals and bureaucrats and stuff. And what we found out 
I mean, they wanted to know about language acquisition, language learning, and so on, and how we can help with things. Um, what we found out was one of the reasons intelligence was so faulty for the invasion of Iraq, aside from the fact that some people just wanted to invade that country, is that there weren't enough Arabic speakers in the government who could handle the intelligence. And the same is true of Farsi or Persian, whatever you want to call it, um, and other languages. And so, so there is a benefit. I mean, there is a benefit to the country for people who, if they want to, if they're interested in that kind of thing. And I have some friends who actually have gone into intelligence work and work for the government. Um, so I, that's, I think, a good thing. So, anyway, so those those are my little things. I think every, all of us know those kinds of things. So we just have to put them out there and let people know. Yes. Hey, Blair. Hello. She came up to the microphone. <laughs> she did. I did. Okay, Blair. I guess that means my first question is, how do you get past this wanting to vomit feeling when you come up here? Oh. <laughs> Maybe I'll end up in the hospital like you. <laughs> well, I, I, they gave me nausea pills yesterday, too, so I can give you some of those. We've, we've got a bag for that if you need it. Okay, well, I'll let you know. <laughs> Just stay close to Walter, that's all I'm going to say. <laughs> Okay, um, so I posted a few questions, but the one that I'm more, most curious about is, if you had to give a TED Talk, what would you focus in on and how would you relate to audiences from all backgrounds, including people that are not coming from this standpoint? So it sort of relates to that last question, but, or like world language standpoint, I mean. Uh -huh. You know what I mean? Yeah, if I were to give a TED Talk. Yeah. Can't you people ask me this question? Yesterday I got the 22nd or 32nd elevator question. Elevator well, pitch. I'm and just so saying because I feel like that's such a great way to like spread our, the, our passion for world languages to such a vast audience. So it'd be really cool if you could do it. Yeah, I'd have to think about it. You know, Blair, that's a good question. You, you've stumped me, because I don't think I could answer that in the time that we have here, because I haven't. I need to think about that, what I would do in a TED Talk. Okay. How do we get them scheduled for a TED Talk? Do you know that? You what? How would you get them scheduled for a TED Talk? Got to contact the TED Talk people. And, I guess. I know. That Walter, get on that. We'll, hey. we'll get on that. Can you get on that, Blair? You let us know what you find out. You know, you talk to my people, and I'll get back to you with that. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. I and think then, the butterflies are gone. She's not going to vomit now. <laughs> yeah, you just you just she's have getting, to like get me going for a second. She's getting sassy with Walter, so. <laughs> I was still pretty nervous, but... I'm going to write that down, though. That's good. I'm going to okay. think about that, so... Um, also, if you could, talk to Ellen DeGeneres and have her make her <laughs> app shareable, like the custom decks with students. That'd be great. I tried emailing, and I haven't heard anything, so... <laughs> oh, well, you know, she's a good friend of mine. <laughs> hey, you're, you're a lot more famous than I am, so... Maybe one day I'll surpass you, but no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I like it. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Blair. That was... <laughs> Yeah, I, I, that's a really a TED talk. I never thought about that, but that's you know because those are again. I mean, not just because I've talked to parents. I've done PTA meetings. I've done things like that, um, whether it's not language people per se, but people are their kids are studying language. So I have to think about that. That's a really good question. Okay, we got somebody else up at the mic. Step up. Get close to the mic and tell Hi. us your name. Um, I'm Lisa from Cleveland, Ohio. Hey, Lisa from Cleveland, Ohio. How are you doing? Good. How are you? I'm okay right now. Thanks. Okay. Um, so I have a confession. Um, I think okay. You say ten Hail Marys and one Our Father and go sit down. <laughs> I think you talked about this a few weeks ago on one of your shows, but I missed it. So I'm really sorry if you have already answered this question. Um, but I wanted to ask about learner differences in the classroom. I have many students on IEPs that say, for example, they have a weak working memory or weak reading or verbal processing skills. So how does this affect their acquisition of language? It shouldn't. 
not acquisition. It will affect their learning of language, but not their acquisition of language. Unless you have a true cognitive impairment where you have some brain damage or something like that that affects where language, because you gotta remember, we're not talking about not, we're not talking about learning about language, like a subject, like other subject matter, in which case those kinds of things would affect that, right? Um, we're talking about building that abstract, complex, implicit system in your head through interaction with the input. Um, and the, all the individual differences that, because I've done some research on, on some of those individual differences, um, but all the individual differences that we know of we have no link to them that I know of, unless I'm missing something in literature, to acquisition. They're linked to classroom learning, they're linked to explicit learning, all kinds of things, but they're not linked to acquisition. Um, and do you remember that, did I talk about that Japanese study that we did? I talked about it last night at the banquet. Um, my student Megan and I looked at aptitude in the, in the initial stages of learning Japanese. And we found out, for example, like language aptitude, which is measured by certain things, has absolutely no impact on acquisition, because we were looking at very abstract properties of language that these learners were getting through the input. Um, and sure enough, didn't show up at all, as opposed to some of the other kinds of research. So some of these things where you're talking about um, uh, verbal impairments and so on, those are things that affect your, your processing of information, but not necessarily your processing of language. Now, it could slow down slightly, because if, if they can't understand a message in the second language, if, if you, you know, that could slow them down a little bit um, while they're trying to figure out what you're saying, right? But it, uh, in the long run, it shouldn't really, it doesn't, and there's nothing you can do about it because it's, it's, you can't teach around it, so. Okay, then why does, for example, take, you know, at the middle of the year in Spanish one, why is one student, you know, just producing great language and another student is just struggling to get, like, I go to the store? And just, like, I mean, for example, if they want to communicate that message and they're struggling on really high-frequency words that we've used throughout the year, like go, I have, et cetera. Okay. First of all, I, I would avoid the word struggling um, for a variety of reasons. Okay. Let me walk you back to something we did in the show a couple weeks back. Um, here's the biggest untalked about thing in language acquisition, that all these individual differences and these rates of stuff that you're describing show up in first language acquisition as well. But we notice them more in second language acquisition because we're dealing with days and calendar time. But children, for example, I've said this before, you take, a, you take 10 two-year-olds and they're all not at the same stage of language acquisition even though they've been in the same environment. They are at different stages. Um, they eventually all get to the same place, but the, there might be one who's at the one-word stage. Well, two years are already beyond the one-word stage. That might be on the two-word stage. Some might be in the three-word stage. Some might have this. Some might not have that. Um, and individual differences are just built into the genome of human processing of language or anything for that matter. And so um, what you're seeing in the classroom is probably the same thing you would have seen in first language acquisition. That kid who is struggling would have been struggling at two years old. Okay, thank you very much. So, I appreciate it. There you go. All right. Thanks. Good question. Okay, we have time for one more question, then we're going to be wrapping up in here in a little bit. So go ahead. Okay, it's just Blair is back at the mic for you. Yes. And, and, and at home back. listening. Blair Bishop, Delaware, Ohio. No. <laughs> okay, so um, anyway, I just, it was off of that. So then. This is like Blair Witch Project 2. <laughs> Blair Witch Project 3. I, I'll have to watch that. You've never seen Blair Witch Project? No. Oh my God, take a, take a drama of me before you do. Okay. <laughs> okay, I'll be sure no, to do that. No, that camera, shaky yeah. camera thing really. 
Okay, so then based on what you just said, what do you propose about grading since students have different um, frequencies of, of learning languages? Um, I've long advocated getting rid of grades. Um, so, and okay. And testing. I actually talked to my dean about this again recently, and he is on board. Um, I, I'm just say it out loud. I love my dean, Chris Long. He's just great. Um, but he actually has read up on language acquisition. He's a philosopher. He's read up on language acquisition. Read some of the things I've written, other people have written. Um, and he understands now that if you truly are trying to go for proficiency and acquisition, that grading can be an impediment to that. Okay. So and that we need other, other ways to think about how to get people. Motivated? Uh, motivated and, and moving through. So, yeah. which is, for example, like maybe an exit outcome, like some kind of proficiency outcome. Or because that just made me wonder, based on like the deep structure that we are so used to nowadays, like how you do motivate people if you get rid of grades, or do you just make it pass fail because they're showing progress, or you know, all that sort of thing. So, yeah, I mean, um, there, I, I mean, the simplest thing to do is just get rid of grades and pass fail and all that altogether and tests, and just say. You are free to go when you reach intermediate mid. You're done with your, like, I work in a university context where there's a language requirement. So you might get there in two semesters, you might get there in three semesters, you might come in with that, it might take you five semesters, who knows. Um, but you are done when you reach that level. And you can go into a language center and get tested, for example. Um, and, and the transcripts can say intermediate mid instead of 4.0. Instead of 4.0, and again, cool. I had two semester, you know, two years of Spanish, and I can't speak a word, right? So that kind of thing is is probably a better way to look at it, um, okay. some kind of exit criteria, and, and and we have the means now. We have a, we have some of the means. I think that we could probably think along those lines, but it's very hard, because that's not part of institutionalized education to think that way, right? Well, let me know so. when you convince politicians and uh, principals and stuff like that. So yep. thank okay. you. <laughs> All right. <laughs> And don't forget, it doesn't burden just doesn't fall on my shoulders, it falls on your shoulders as well, because we want to create an army of experts that can talk to principals, talk to politicians, talk to superintendents, and so on, talk to representatives, and talk to parents, um, so that we can get more and more people on board thinking this way. So, um, and I think, you know, I actually think that if we talk to parents more, we convince parents, then, because they're the ones who vote, they're the ones who pay taxes, they're the ones who complain to principals, they're the ones, and that would be, I think, probably one of the best ways to get our foot in the door to making change, is convince those parents about language acquisition and how it works. So, is it time for our door prize? It's time it for is. the door prizes. All right, should we Singular. start? Should Singular. We, what should we start with, the iPad or one of the books? The books. The books. books, okay. So. Which one are we giving away first? We're gonna give away The Whisper of Clouds, stories from the Windy City, Angelica. Oh, goodness. You think that I can read names. Teresa Bell. Teresa Bell. Where's Yay, Teresa? Hey, Teresa. There you go, Teresa. Thank you. If you want afterwards, I'll sign it for you, too. Okay, the next, the next, the next one is Dust Storm, Stories from Lubbock. You see a theme here? Okay. These are all places I've lived, by the way. I apologize if I mispronounce the last name. Nicole... Marie Hanlon, maybe. Nicole. Nicole, hey, Nicole, yeah, there you Nicole. go. Hey. How do you pronounce your name? Did How do you pronounce your name, Nicole? Well? Is that okay the way she pronounced your name? Yeah. Okay, great. Excellent. She's like, oh, I don't care, just give me the damn book. <laughs> <laughs> 
And the big prize. Drum roll, please. And this is courtesy of Ofla, so a big round of applause for Ofla for providing this prize. Wow. All right. And the winner is... (coughs) Yeah, that name I totally cannot read. Ipse Maldonado Flores. Who, where, 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 where? You have to be present to win. Uh Uh-oh. No. She was sitting over here. Vino y se fue, as we say in Spanish. Uh Okay, here we go. One more chance. Ipse just went upso. (laughs) (laughs) Dina Marsala. Dina, Marsala, yay, Dina. You have a new iPad. Thank the people in the back from Ofla for the iPad. Thank you all very much. It's time to wrap up, Daniel. Let's do it. Well, that concludes our show. We've got plenty of buttons and things up here. Come, feel free to grab something um, on your way out. I'm going to do my acknowledgments. I'd like to thank our technical producer, Daniel Trago. Give him a little round of applause here. This guy Yay, works very well. Daniel. And of course, our trusted and talented muscle man, Dustin DeFelice, right there in the red shirt. Okay, we have three people in our crew who couldn't be with us. Let me just mention them real quick. Luca Giappone, who's our, um, who does all our PR work. Jeff Maloney, our production assistant. And Jennifer Lee, who's an intern with us. Um, they're back in East Lansing. We'd like to thank the College of Arts and Letters at Michigan State University, especially our dean, Christopher Long. I can't mention him enough. He's a wonderful man. Um, as a reminder, the ideas and opinions expressed in our show do not reflect those of the College of Arts and Letters, any of our sponsors, or any other entity of Michigan State University, except for Angelica. Okay. And of course, we want to thank all of our listeners out there. And last but not least, we want to thank Ofla and everybody in this room and everybody at the conference. So, yay, give yourselves a round of applause. Okay. Next week, we're back in the studio at a regular time on Thursday at 3 o'clock Eastern Time. Until then, have a great weekend. Those of you here, have a great rest of the day. And we'll see you all next week. Bye bye. Bye, everybody. Bye, everybody.